So this is the third and final sermon in our little mini-series through this passage, 1 Samuel 17. This is my favorite passage in the Old Testament, actually in the whole Bible. I love this story, all of its action, its, its parts, the details, the nuances, the intricacies, the, the comparisons. It's a fantastic passage. We looked the first week at how the primary point of this passage is to tell us that we are not David. That only the faithfulness of the Lord's anointed one can save you. And so we looked at how this passage points us to Jesus, who fought the battle against the enemy we could never, ever, ever beat, and has secured victory for us. And so we live because of his accomplishments. That's the primary point of the passage. And then last week, we looked at how this passage does, in fact, have some principles for how we can face difficulty and trial and adversity in our lives. And so we saw how this passage lays out some biblical groundwork and framework for approaching life. Life is hard. It's harder if you don't know how to do it well. And this passage lays out some good principles. But as we look at this passage for the third and final time, I'm drawn to a topic, to a subject that, that matters a lot to me. I, as I've served in various ministry capacities, as I served as a chaplain in the army, I, I saw this, I see it in our broad culture, I see it in our church culture, I see it all around us, and what I see is a crisis of masculinity. I am convinced that the taunt of Goliath could be put on its head and presented in a way that is a legitimate question, a legitimate assertion. Show me a man. Give me a man. In this passage, uh, we have three key characters. We have, of course, David. But we have Goliath, and then we have Saul, who was juxtaposed against David. These three characters highlight three primary and distinct notions of masculinity that exist in the world. Now, why does this even matter? Shouldn't you preach this on Father's Day, Ben? No. I long ago got tired of, of Father's Day messages that are essentially men be better. You know, on Mother's Day, it's y'all are great. On Father's Day, it's men, you stink. Okay, so I don't do that. I don't do that. No, we are called to emulate Christ. And Christ is what's known as the perfect man, the true man, the second Adam. He does in perfection what Adam failed to do. When God created Adam, it was for purposes of having dominion over the earth. And the picture we get was that there was essentially chaos outside the garden. And the garden was orderly and structured. And as Adam worked and tended the garden and procreated and filled the earth, they were to perpetually expand the boundaries of the garden, bringing God's kingdom over the earth. And of course, instead of reigning over creation, Adam is tripped up by it. And he listens to what he should have been master over, and he gets led astray. Jesus is the perfect man. He comes and he obeys God's commandments perfectly. 
he starts a new creation that is progressing along until eventually everything is made new. But along the way, in the here and now, in every culture, we have problems of how are we to be men. We say we look to Christ, but our cultural notions perpetually and continually get caught up in the mix. I would suggest that in a very real sense, the problem that our culture has created for manhood now is that we live in essentially a Peter Pan world. Are you familiar with that book or just the Disney or many, one of the many uh, reincarnations of it? But in Peter Pan, the gist is you have a boy who won't grow up. He prides himself in not growing up. In our culture, it used to be that you'd graduate high school and you were ready for adulthood. <laughs> they say now the 30s have become the new 20s. Perhaps some of you remember that 1991 movie Hook, which itself was Peter Pan, but Robin Williams plays a Peter Pan who left Never Never Land, and in so doing, he had to grow up. And he's portrayed in, of course, a negative light, how he's, he's so work folk, he, he's so serious and so, and, and so driven that he can't have any fun. And through a chain of events, he gets taken back to Neverland where he gets to recover his youthful spirit. Youthfulness! Carefreeness! That's the ideal. Being serious and sober. That's disdained. We've gone a long way from the days of Father Knows Best. We've come a long way. Look at any of the shows on TV or look at how men are portrayed in movies. The man is almost always a comedic, bumbling buffoon. And the woman is almost always the one who really has her head on straight and she knows what's going on. Almost always. The ideal presented in our movies is that a man is at his best when he's carefree. Hanging out in his man cave. And if you're committed, if you're committed to providing for your family, oh, what a, you got a ball and chain, oh. That's a joke. The real reality is that a man who has no responsibilities is a waste. But that's entirely countercultural. Entirely countercultural. We live in a day of guys, not men. And you know what the difference between a guy and a man is? A guy hangs out in his parents' basement with empty pizza boxes all around him playing his Xbox. And a man has a job and is invested in the three spheres of society that God has created, his family, his church, and his, and his civil magistrate. A man takes responsibility. Now, this crisis of masculinity is not just accidental. There are a number of culture-shaping pressures, uh, uh, enforcers, that have created a perfect storm for boys to stay boys. We've demonized malehood, maleness, to the point where any time a boy acts boyish, they say he has ADHD. Any time a boy doesn't just want to sit still, he's a behavioral problem. Any time a man wants to lead his family, he's called a, a patriarchalist, toxic 
masculinity. All across the board, men are told to sit down and shut up. You're the problem, men. Look even at Christian books on marriage and family. The problem is essentially you, men. If you would just learn to relate and emote like a woman, everything would be better. Now into this gap, some have tried to respond. Like in, in the early 90s, John Eldridge created a book or wrote a book called Wild at Heart. Incredibly popular book. But his basic thesis is that women were created inside the Garden of Eden. Women were created for civilization, therefore. Men, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, men were created outside the garden and brought into the garden by God. So men were created for life outside the garden. Men were created for chaos. And so the idea is, men, you need to start taking risks. And he he says, go on man quests. I'm not sure that's right either, because God, in fact, made him for the garden. That's why he put him there. The crisis of manhood manifests itself principally in the fact that we don't know what men are supposed to do. What is a man supposed to do? What are we supposed to be teaching our boys to do? What are we teaching them to be? I would posit to you that the charge of manhood is to assume the responsibilities of headship. Therefore, the task we should be laying upon our boys is to prepare them for assuming the responsibilities of headship. And biblical headship rests on three pillars. The pillar of protection, the pillar of provision, and the pillar of leadership. The Bible, in two places, explicitly calls us to be men, men. First Kings 2, 2. One of his last words, David, he's dying. His son Solomon is about to take over. And there's some unfinished business that needs to be taken care of. And you can read about it. And David says to him, I'm about to go the way of the earth. You need to be a man. And then, of course, writing to the New Testament church at Corinth, Paul tells them to be watchful, stand firm, act like men. Men, you are to be an example. You are not a problem. So, what I want to do now is look at these three characters, Saul, Goliath, and David, and evaluate them in the light of these three pillars of headship. And see where they fall short and where they stand up. I want you to understand that being a man means assuming those responsibilities that God has created you for. And ladies, I don't mean you can fall asleep now. Because the, most, the single most powerful influencer in a man's life is a woman. A woman can make a man do crazy things. And so the key way that a woman can influence her husband to take on the responsibilities he's supposed to is to encourage him and to reward good behavior. I don't want to say it's like training a dog, but 
you reward positive behavior and you get positive results, okay? It's management 101. Reward the behavior you want to see reproduced. So, I just said, David is the middle, Goliath and Saul are the extremes. Now, let's look at Goliath first of all, because he's, I think, the, the traditional American model. Goliath represents the strong alpha male. Look at him, how he comes out. He's the aggressive guy. He's loud. He's boastful. He's into shock and awe. He wants to impress you. He's bigger than you. He's stronger than you. And he knows it. And he wants you to know that he knows it. So you see it manifest not only, not only out, on, out on the beach in L.A. or down in Miami, you know, when those bodybuilders up. No, you see it when driving down. Look at the rims on my Look at the, listen to the bass booming from my car, boom, 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 and you're like, oh my goodness. Look at the TV, look at the house. Look at my smart degrees, look at my trophy. The alpha male, I'm in charge. Now, the alpha male, like Goliath, may be willing to work hard, but he's working hard for the purpose of the glory and the attainments so that he can show off. All right. So what does it look like in terms of accepting the responsibilities of headship? Well, let's look at leadership first of all. Okay. You got a 9 foot 9 or 9 foot 6 guy. He's wearing 120 pound armor. He's bigger and badder and stronger than everybody. You'd think that with his size and prowess in combat that he would like take over and make himself the king of the Philistines. But he's not. He's content just being a prize fighter. He's so banal, just like the banality of the alpha male mindset. I don't want to actually do anything. I don't want to be responsible. Leave me in my tent, chowing down on a side of beef with a big old glass of whatever your favorite beverage is. Maybe have some babes. And yeah, ring the bell when you need me to come out and crack some skulls. And then I'll show off and flex my muscle and then go back to living my life of ease. He's not leading anybody. No initiative. And in terms of protecting, my goodness, he's a fool. He's into shock and awe, like all alpha male types are. He wants to be impressed. Look how bad I am. So he walks out there, totally unself-aware that a nine-foot, six-inch person has a big, fat face. And it says... David approaches him with his sling in his hand. Now, the sling, as I've said before, was a legitimate military weapon. It wasn't a boy's toy. But he's so arrogant. He's so overconfident that he doesn't even either pay attention to it or he doesn't care about it. No, I'm untouchable. Pride always comes before the fall. And the alpha mentality of impressiveness caused him to be overconfident and his overconfidence led to his people's defeat how about providing he's not interested in securing the good of his people he puts his people at risk also he can show off and hear the laughs of his people and the cries of his enemies utterly self-absorbed so what can we do boys Men, 
the desire for us in our heart to show off, to strut around like a peacock is strong in a male mind, in a male heart. Resist this. Develop and instill a servant's heart. God put you here for the purpose of someone else. Any strength you may have, any skills you may have, any prowess you may have, any knowledge you may have, God gave you for the good of other people, not just so you could stand there and crack skulls, metaphorically speaking. Girls, you got to be wary. Girls are drawn to the bad boy. They like rock stars and quarterbacks. And I have, if you want guys to not behave that way, then don't recognize it. Don't reward it. Pursue someone who is demonstrating that they will take you seriously. Don't look for someone who's just trying to impress. Now, on the other hand, Saul represents the, what we could say nowadays is the beta male, the passive male. He's supposedly in charge, but he's not leading. He's, he wants the perks of being king without any of the responsibilities. He's willing to let others do what he should be doing. Think about it. He was a head taller than everybody else. He's the only one other than his son who had any legitimate military armor. He should have been out there fighting the battle for his people. Instead, he's cowering in his tent. And I would suspect that most of his men were living in a trench while he had that tent. And even once he sees David do his thing, all he's concerned about is another worker. He's not really wanting to be in charge. He should have been up front, like George Washington with his indomitable presence, inspiring other people. Did you know, read, read a biography of George Washington. He, it's no small, it's no understatement to say he pretty much won the Revolutionary War by himself. Because so many times the Continental Army wanted to turn tail and run, and it was his personal presence on the battlefield lead that inspired people to turn around and fight the British. Leadership is presence, and you have to be there and inspire and fight. What about protecting? This is where the beta male mindset is, is so prevalent. You see, he's not throwing his men to the meat grinder, is he? No. But he's content to have them in a stalemate. He's risk averse. If you read 1 Samuel, the people of Israel are starving. They're poor. And the longer they sit there in that stalemate, the hungrier and poorer they become. He's not taking the initiative at all. Oh, if I do something, we might lose. We might, might, might. Might, might, might. Better to do nothing and wish upon a star that he'll maybe have an aneurysm and fall over. This is war, not a football game. When that dude came out there, Saul should have been like, shoot that sucker. Instead, risk averse. Take some initiative. Do something. We just read a couple chapters before that his son Jonathan leads this awesome commando raid on a Philistine outpost. They should have sent him around back behind. Joshua knew how to outflank and outmaneuver. Attack the Philistines from the rear. But no, 
absolutely risk-averse. Now, guys, there are so many who are risk-averse. I can't make any changes. I can't do anything because that might disrupt the status quo and the equilibrium. She might get mad at me. Lead your family. Don't be the guy who wants to be the head of the house, called the head of the household while you just sit around reaping the benefits without doing any of the responsibility. When I was at Fort Bragg as a young chaplain, I had a guy who came in and a couple come in for counseling. And, and whenever you're in counseling and you hear someone say, so-and-so always does this or never does that, it's, a, it's almost always an overstatement. You're hearing a remotion, an emotional response, not a statement of fact. Well, she goes, he always comes home and sits on the couch, and I feed dinner, and he never does a thing. He, and and I'm, so I'm immediately clicking, okay, it's, she's just making an emotional response. It's not really absolute fact, da-da-da-da. And he's sitting there. So I, when she finishes talking, I say, well, do her, what, what do you say about that? And he goes, that's right. <laughs> he was like a 20-year-old PFC. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, an E3. What would that be in Navy terms? Uh, whatever. Some junior-ranking person. Very, just two years out of high school. And he goes, I work hard all day, so when I get home, I expect to be treated like a king. And so by his own admission, he just sat there on the couch. She took his boots off everything. And I was like, being the head of the house does not mean you put a Burger King crown on your head. Don't be like that. Now, guys, I understand it is so frustrating. More often than not, a woman will say, a woman will complain, I want my man to invest himself and, and, to, and, to, and to have an opinion and take some charge. Then a moment he does take charge, she fights. And it's very discouraging. Well, guys, gird up your loins and do your job. I'm not saying to be a jerk, but operate with some conviction. God puts you on this earth to take ownership and responsibility for your family. So be a man. Remember, God wants you not just to bring home a paycheck, He wants you to protect your family. That means not only physically, though it includes physically, but spiritually. What do your kids listen to? What influences do you allow around your wife? What influences do you allow into your household, into your own life? People can harm and destroy. Do you protect them from that? Do you make wise decisions financially so that way your family's financial situation is secure, or as secure as it can be in an unstable world? Take risks and provide for your family. Train your daughters to seek out men who want to embrace the responsibilities of headship. Now lastly, we're going to look at David. Because I believe David represents Christ himself. And he represents the ideal. L look, at, look at him, the way he's described. He works responsib responsibly. I mean, he's going back and forth. No one likes a lazy bum. Guys especially. Men, boys, no one likes a lazy bum. Get a job. Work. Learn a craft. Learn a trade. Develop a skill set so you can provide and do something productive. No one likes a lazy bum. 
And that's exactly what David is doing. He has so many skills. He's an instrumentalist. He's a warrior. He's a shepherd. He knows how to manage a convoy. I mean, he knows it all. He's zealous for God's glory without being rash. That's the problem with a lot of young men is we're zealous, but we're rash. And he reigns in the rashness, and so he's respectful of the king. He takes initiative. He's not impetuous. He's not overstepping his bounds, but he takes initiative. Do you take initiative? Or do you have to sit around waiting for someone to tell you to do something? He's prudent without being cowardly. Think about that. He goes out to battle, even though maybe the armament that Saul wanted to give him was superior, nonetheless he knew that a tool and and an equipment that he'd never tested was a useless tool. So he went out with the weapon that he had skill with, trusting in God to work through his experience, training, and practice to accomplish great things. Is that what you do? Godly masculinity understands the difference between being good and being nice. In our culture, in an American churchy culture, I think we've confused the two. Being nice is simply not being offensive, just just being polite and never rubbing anyone the wrong way. Well, sometimes, in order for good to triumph, you got to do some ugly things. Like David, he has to go out and cut off a man's head. But that's what goodness required. Foster a culture where you encourage boys and girls to pursue goodness over niceness. I'm not saying it's wrong to be nice, but there's a time when it's more important to be good. I think about the oft-repeated story about Teddy Roosevelt when he was a Sunday school teacher and he had a boy in his class who came into the classroom one Sunday with a black eye and he asked him, what's the deal with the black eye, son? And the boy said, well, this other kid was picking on my sister and I told him to stop and he wouldn't stop so we, we had to go to blows. Defending his sister. So Teddy Roosevelt gave him a dollar. When we were in Germany at Robinson Barracks, there was, after the chapel service, uh, one of my children, they were at the park, and there were some kids, they, they have these big walnuts, and, and some of these kids were throwing walnuts at this little girl. And one of my sons picked up a walnut. The next one of you that throws a walnut at this girl is going to get one from me. And guess what? They stopped. It's like magic. Sometimes for goodness to prevail, You must use this thing called force. Train your boys to understand that goodness is important. And sometimes for goodness to prevail, you must be prepared to put yourself on the line. Boys, men, you have before you three basic models. David's faithfulness, his commitment to God's glory, his commitment to being a true man, secured the safety and the provision of his people. Saul, and he went down the ash heap. And Goliath, well, he didn't even last the day. Pursue biblical masculinity. And remember that biblical masculinity is a strong, robust commitment to accepting the responsibilities of headship. If you pursue this, 
God will bless you. Let's pray.